Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it All right, folks, I, we've got a, a, a kind of a profile episode. I've done these a uh, few times along the way. I did one about a year ago with uh, Marilyn Vetter when she took over as president and CEO. And I get tremendously positive feedback when uh, we kind of profile new employees, uh, particularly folks in leadership positions. And that's what we've got. That's what I've got lined up for you today. Uh, in late 2023, we added a brand new important leader to the organization, Ariel Wegard. She joined as our brand new Vice President of Government Affairs. But I've said brand new twice, but she's no stranger to Washington, D.C. In fact, uh, she's built quite a resume for herself over the last 15 years, working for a wide array of um, organizations, both in the conservation sector as well as the agricultural um, arena. Um, So now that uh, Ariel's got a few months under her belt, so to speak, um, working on behalf of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members and our issues. Uh, and she happens to be in town. We're in a convention hall, <laughs> so or a con- meeting room. So if you hear a little background noise, that's the uh, air conditioner, even though it's the middle of winter and it's freezing cold in here. But uh, let me compliment you first on your sweater. Oh, Ariel. thank you. Uh, tell me about the sweater. Uh well, I can describe it yeah, for the for audience. It, yeah. So it's an olive green Irish knit, Irish wool sweater. Uh, it's it's long. It goes down to about my knees. And all around the bottom are uh, embroidered pheasants. It's, it's yeah. absolutely, as you said, you're on brand. I am very on brand. And... Um, uh, I'll have to take a photo of you at some point, not to be weird, <laughs> right off the bat. It can bat, go up on the blog when you post the, the podcast. There we it can go. be the header image. There it's we go. The um, and, and the reason for the photo is I looked at this very sweater, Christmas shopping for my wife. For, so this is related to Meredith. <laughs> I saw this sweater. I was like, that's perfect. I should get that for her. And, here you are. You have it. It looks great. I have it, and you should get one for your wife. I should. I'm sure it would look great on her, too. I, I, th- I think I'm going with the blue version because, uh, you know, I'm wearing blue. And well, and God forbid she and I are ever in the <laughs> same room wearing the sweater at the same time, then things would get really uncomfortable. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that might happen at Pheasant Fest before too long. Before it's too long, it's coming up quick. It is coming up quick. So uh, thank you for joining me. Um, welcome to the organization. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Um, let's, let's start with the basics. Like, introduce yourself to the audience, where you're from, where you grew up, uh, kind of your background, where you went to school. Um, you know, to tell us uh, about Ariel Wegard. Sure. And that's not even your, your, that's your, not your maiden name either. It's not. No, it's my married name. Um, I uh, have been married to my wonderful husband since 2010. Does he have a pheasant sweater? 
Uh, he has the new Pheasants Forever Ugly sweater. <laughs> that there we go. We sold uh, <laughs> back in December, and he did. He wore it most of the <laughs> holiday season. Um, so it's maybe not as uh, as chic as the one that yeah, I'm wearing, there you go. but it it does get some good use. Um, but yeah, we've been married since 2010, and um, have a three year old uh, at home who is uh, definitely a three year old boy. He's super rambunctious, loves getting dirty outside. Um, he can name about 20 different species of ducks, though, hmm. uh, but not any quail. So I, I have decided that I need to get some quail mounts at home. And maybe uh, a quail sweater. Maybe a quail sweater <laughs> so that we can work through his native species identification. But, um, yeah, he's great. And then we have two German short hair pointers. Team GSP, Team let's GSP, go. Team GSP, what, what. Um, and yeah. they, you have some cool names for your short hairs. Uh, yeah, so my uh, the older one is uh, Argus. Argus. But we call him Gus or Gus Noodle or <laughs> Gustopher Robin or, you know, any number of other things that, you know, we do with our dogs. Um, he's uh, 13 now, mm. so retired. But where's Where's the name Argus come from? Uh, it comes from, um, uh, from the Odyssey, actually, the ancient Greek Kay. Homeric epic um, when uh, Odysseus comes home mm-hmm. after his journeys Mm -hmm. you know his his decades away from home um he comes back and nobody recognizes him except for his dog Mm. so his dog has been waiting for him that whole time and see now that's that's the kind of story that i expect people to give when they tell me their dog that's the best one i've heard oh i love it hey yeah i absolutely you know um I was thinking, Argus, you know, Sioux Falls Argus leader, you named your dog after a newspaper? No, you have a much, I mean, that's a terrific story. The only you can't really get older with a dog name. It's as classic as you can get. It's that's awesome. 3,000 years old. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's, he's awesome, though. He's, uh, he's like an 80-pound behemoth, huge black and white pointer. Um, and uh, we found him on a dairy farm. Hmm. In Vermont, we just kind of stumbled into uh, into this dog, which we weren't looking for a hunting dog at the time. Um, I mean, we can kind of back up to my hunting journey at some point, but I was mm-hmm. brand new to all of this. I think by the, when we got the dog, I hadn't even shot a shotgun yet. Huh. Um, so, it, you know, it just kind of all the pieces come together. Were you were you a um, big Greek mythology like you study literature why was that or just the story of the connection is so fitting um so uh studied some of it but not in high school sure uh it wasn't my college major or anything i was gotcha. political science and mm-hmm. american history um but i, just, I don't know the story just always I resonated lo- I, yeah i love it that there will be other arguses as a result of you telling that stuff oh good i think so i, I really like that well, for anyone who wants to name their dog Argus, it's A R G O S. Okay. Not like the newspaper. There with you the go. U. Yeah. So. And the second dog, if I'm recalling correctly, is named Covey. That's right. Right. Yeah. So she uh, she's our little pocket pointer. She's not even forty pounds. Um, she came to us from Georgia. Uh, very appropriate for a quail name. Yeah. And a quail dog, and she is feisty. She's <laughs> tiny and fast, and she's got a killer prey drive. Um, but together, they make a really fun combination. That's awesome. Great family dogs, great outdoors dogs. I mean, our listeners know all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Okay, so that's kind of a current family situation. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right downtown. Uh, dad's family's from South Philly, big Italian Roman Catholic family. Uh, not exactly a hotbed of, of pheasant and quail 
hunter activity. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but I did grow up around hunters. Um, I had uncles and cousins who hunted and really the exposure that I got to the sport was through the food. Hmm. So, you know, they would bring venison, they would Mm -hmm. bring wild mushrooms, they would bring, you know, all of their outdoor, um, tasty treats to family gatherings. And, um, you know, as I got older, those family gatherings started happening less and less, just people, you know, get older, move on, move to new parts of the country. And I kept like chasing those, those flavors. Mm. Um, and when we got to Vermont, I started doing some foraging myself. Uh, and that was sort of the, you know, kind of first uh, foray into wild foods as an adult. So morels, wild asparagus, things morels, like that? Morels, fiddleheads. Okay. Um, we were right on a, um, the White River. Mm-hmm in the Connecticut River Valley, which is great trout fishing. Mm. So we'd, you know, do a little of this, do a little of that. Um, it was, it was a really special, special place and a special time for, you know, for food adventures, I'll yeah. put it that way. And, um, as, as part of that experience, I, I was introduced to Woodcock. Okay. Um, so that was sort of my first, my first game. Uh, and then I mentioned we we stumbled into our first GSP, and you know everything's just kind of fallen into so place since there. You, uh, woodcock was the first bird mm-hmm. you hunted. Yep. Okay. I love woodcock. I do too. Not everybody does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm a pretty adventurous eater. You know, it's it's a pretty strong taste. Yeah. Um, my dog won't touch it. Dogs Is that right? Won't touch it. They won't retrieve. Will they point? They will point them. They won't retrieve them. Huh. Um, you could hand it to them, and they they literally will turn their noses up. Okay. At it, but. You know, more for us. <laughs> There's not very much meat there, so, you know, you don't really want to share it anyway. I, I have witnessed that some dogs just, yeah, I mean, the, the force broke ones will obviously pick them up and bring them to you. But naturally, it's probably, um, I don't know, 7 out of 10 will pick them up. You know, the other 30%, eh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, mine are in the other 30%, which huh. is, um, you know, woodcock are small and they mm-hmm. blend in mm-hmm. to the Cover. And they have a strong uh, odor flavor. Which they do, but I'm saying it's it's it, if the dog's not retrieving them, they're they're hard to find. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. You end up yep. tramping around in the yeah, right in on. the woods quite right a bit. Uh, but they do have a, a pretty strong flavor. If 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 you like eating awful, hmm. you know, kind of organ mm-hmm. meats, liver, things like that, you'll like woodcock. Yeah, I, um, sharp tails, real mm-hmm. dark mare, greater prairie chicken, similar too. Yeah, yeah, yeah really rich, yeah, really dark, very meat. much yeah. so. Yeah. Um, all right, so. Take us a little bit through your career. Um, it, where, where'd you go to college? Went to the University of Virginia okay. for college. Wahoo! Uh, <laughs> Say that again. Wahoo! 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 Is that the? It's fu- part of the school cheer. Ca- yeah. The Cavaliers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, okay. that's right. Go Hoos. You'll hear Go Hoos because of the Wahoo! Okay. Um, so yeah, went there for undergrad. Um, politics, American history. Mm. Um, you were there before the national title, correct? I was. Yeah. Yeah, which was too bad. This, the sports teams were not so great when I was <laughs> there. Um, we had a, a habit of going to football games, like, in the second quarter and then mm. leaving sometime in the third quarter. Because mm. it just, it was there, you were there for the social experience, uh-huh. but not really for the football. Um, but no, we missed the, uh, we missed the basketball championship. W- that was, like, five, six years ago mm-hmm. now, right? Maybe yeah. even a little more. Um, but, yeah, they had a tremendous run uh tremendous but brief yeah yeah <laughs> and then things <laughs> fell off dramatically but that's okay yeah. yeah 
So, all right, so you're a Cavalier, yeah. and then... Yeah, so UVA, and then uh, when we moved to Vermont, so we actually went there for my husband to go to law school. Mm. Um, so Vermont Law School then, it's now Vermont Law and Graduate School, has one of the top environmental law programs in the country. Hmm. And he wanted to go for, specifically for energy law and policy. Um, so he, uh, he took us to Vermont. And, um, you know, before that, maybe I'll back up even a little bit before that. My first job out of college was as a political campaign fundraiser. Hmm. So I, you know, like with half of my graduating class, moved from Charlottesville, Virginia, up to Washington, D.C., and got a job working, doing political campaigns. This is in the run-up to the 2008 election. Okay. So Obama, McCain, you know, it was like really big year, lots of energy. Hmm. So my first job was doing political campaign fundraising. And then the firm that I worked for... Uh, also had a nonprofit arm because you know the political cycle you've only got really got elections every two or four years depending on the office they had to keep people employed in the interim mm -hmm. so they also uh, had a number of nonprofit clients and so I found myself also working for schools and museums and um, we had some uh, zoos and aquariums and all kinds of cool stuff so I was doing a lot of work for those clients as well and so when we moved to Vermont you know, the the political scene up there is a little bit smaller than in <laughs> D.C. You know, there weren't a ton of opportunities for me, but I was very, very lucky to get a job working at the law school as a fundraiser. And, um, you know, so I was working on the one hand, working to you know basically sell these environmental programs um, to to donors. Uh, and then one of the perks of working there is that you can also take classes for mm. free. Mm. And so. I'm a newlywed, you know, my husband's in the library all the time. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in the mid-Atlantic and here we are in Vermont where uh -huh. winter starts in October and, you know, it's dark for, you know, <laughs> 20 hours a day. Right. And um, so I started taking one-off classes in mm. uh, their environmental law and policy program with a focus on agriculture. And when we moved back to D.C. after he graduated, it was like, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to move out of the, the campaign space, the fundraising space, focus more on the policy. Mm. And um, through some of my Ver uh, Vermont connections, actually, I was really fortunate to land at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, TRCP, great partner yeah. for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And that's where I met you for the first time, right? It is. Yep. Yeah. And it's where I became familiar with Pheasants Forever yeah. and Quail Forever. Uh, First time I came to Pheasant Fest, yeah. the Bird Dog Parade. Which which um which city did you first come to Pheasant Fest in Quilt Class? Oh gosh, that probably would have been 2015. Okay, so, so Milwaukee. Maybe, mm. the Kansas City would have been the year after no. that, and then the Twin Cities the year after that, and then Sioux Falls. It might have been. No, it might have been Des Moines. Okay. Did we do one in Iowa? Uh, we did. Or Omaha? We, uh, we've had, yeah. Uh, um, so Omaha was 05 and 09. Des Moines was 10 and then maybe 14? It was probably Des Moines then. Okay. I remember walking Or maybe it was Starbucks. 15 and yeah. Milwaukee was 14. The years, I've been I at know. all of them <laughs> and they all, they can blend I should together. know. I haven't been to all of them. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been Des Moines. Okay. Yeah. Could have been. Could have been. Let's just go with that. Yeah. We'll so you're that. working for TRCP and you come to Pheasant Fest. Yeah, I think I was the first person on staff to come. Um, I, I took over our Twitter account <laughs> and was tweeting, live tweeting photos and 
uh, it, it was great. It was great um, getting to know folks on your staff, our staff. Yeah. Uh, I have I have some pretty funny fi- pictures from back then <laughs> um, that I've been showing folks as you know I've gotten yeah. onboarded here. Um, but uh, but it's a great show and it made an impression and yeah, cool. the team here made a big impression and you know it was one of those things where you know so I, I was at TRCP and then I wanted to get more experience in the ag space mm. so I left I went to work for Syngenta huge agribusiness after that I went for to the uh, American Soybean Association where um, you know I was working directly with farmers and lobbying on conservation precision agriculture all kinds of things like that but then when this opportunity became available. Like it just felt right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like I've I just connected with the organization when when I was first introduced to it, and um, you know, it just really felt like this was the right thing at the right time, and um, and here I am. Yeah, it, yeah. It's an impressive resume, you know, it, it and it does blend, you know, you have your 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 background education wise in environmental. Um, you say environmental law. Uh, right? It was environmental law and policy, not law and po- a law degree though. They've got a whole policy <laughs> arm i want to be very clear i'm not a lawyer but you have that educational background and then you have the trcp experience the syngenta the soybean association so you know from my perspective looking outside of government affairs you know being able to um sort of understand the perspective of what's going to be a, a positive for conservation is also a positive for agriculture and being, you know, your previous two jobs um, were in the agricultural space that, you know, you can think very strategically about how it's going to benefit all sides. Is that an accurate assessment of kind of what you bring to the table based on kind of the, your wide array of backgrounds? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I think, I think you framed it up really well. Um, you know, we have to work with we here at Pheasants Forever, mm-hmm. Forever, we have to work with farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to work with the agricultural community in order to be successful. I mean, that's where our bread and butter is, right? It's it's finding those little strips of land. It's finding those pivot corners. Um, it's finding that, you know, stretch of, of forest that hasn't been touched in decades and working with the people who own and and manage that land to make it just that little bit better for the things that we care about. You can't do, You can't force that on people. Mm-hmm. You know, especially, uh, you know, farmers, ranchers, landowners who have been on their land for generations, you know, they may be really used to doing things one way, Uh, you know, bringing them around to doing it a new way can sometimes take a lot of um, massaging and relationship building. And, you know, again, you you can't force people to do it. You have to bring them along with you. Yeah. And, you know. So we, we need to be very careful that we're not alienating our, our strongest partners in the conservation space. So when you think about, okay, stepping into this role, you know, I was thinking about you bring up, you know, presidential election and politics in D.C. You know, the, the key word there is that you, elected officials go to the ballot box with a platform, what they stand on. Do you have a platform from a policy perspective when it comes to conservation like what your 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 ideal like ideal view vision for the future looks like what what you think um will 
help you achieve success? That's a long-winded question, and I know it's broad, but I guess kind of speak off the top of your head what you think about when I say, what's your conservation platform? Well, I should clarify, you know, are you asking my conservation platform or the organization's conservation <laughs> platform? Because, well, really, sure, I mean, they, sure. they need to be one and the same, right? Mm-hmm. You know, our, our guiding mission here is to ensure that, you know, our, our current generation of hunters, our future generation of hunters, you know, that they are able to continue to do what they love to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into the future and, and to hunt pheasants, to hunt quail, to hunt uh, and just observe and enjoy other wildlife. You know, we know that that's becoming harder each year. Uh, something that we talk about a lot is the loss of our grasslands. Over 70% of the grasslands in this country have, uh, have vanished. And the population of hunters is, is declining as well. And that's presenting its own set of challenges. You know, where I'm concerned, there are federal and state policy decisions that are made every single day that impact the uplands, upland birds, um, you know, and habitat both in good and bad ways and uh, an access and opportunity as well. And I think that it's, it's just really vitally important that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, that we are strategically involved in mm-hmm. the policymaking process at every level and th- that we have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know some of the things that we need to focus on to, to get us to where we want to be. We need a strong federal farm bill. We need better grasslands legislation. Uh, we need public dedicated funding, something we've been talking a lot about recently. Um, we just need better land land management decisions. Um, you know, we know what some of those things are, but there are a lot of things that we we don't know yet. You know, we, we tend to be very reactionary hmm. in this field mm-hmm. um, because we do have a lot of things that are working really, really well. Hmm. Um, you know, the North American model of conservation yeah. is a beautiful thing. You don't walk into work every morning thinking, oh, you know, somebody's out to dismantle that and this is what I'm now going to spend the next year of my life on. But those moments happen, mm-hmm. right? And if you're not staffed up, if you don't have the talent, if you don't have the knowledge, um, you know, if you don't have that seat at the table, it becomes really hard to be impactful when, when opportunities or when needs arise. Mm-hmm. So I guess my platform, my, my, you know, my philosophy is that, is that we need to be present Hmm. You know, we, we need to be everywhere that the decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it's for folks that maybe don't understand the North American model or, or that's maybe they've heard about it, but, you know, what does that really mean? It's kind of the, the difference between here and versus Europe where the public owns the wildlife, right? It's not just where the wildlife live on the land and then you can put up fences and right then only particular private landowners own the wildlife that live within those fences it's how do we manage through conservation policy for the greater good right i mean and that's a critical foundational principle in the united states that you think would why would that ever be challenged and you see signs of that every year, don't you? You see signs of that every year. I mean, you know, one other facet of the North American model as it's, it's come to be developed is that hunters and anglers pay for mm. conservation. Pittman-Robertson uh, dollars and Dingle-Johnson dollars. That's right. You know, so there's there's an excise tax on hunting equipment and ammunition. And whenever somebody buys a box of shotgun shells, 
a portion of that purchase goes into a conservation fund. Right. You know, that money goes to the federal government. It gets sent out to the states, to the wildlife departments to do all of the good things mm -hmm. that we care about. Well, as the number of hunters declines, um, you know, that fund is at risk. Mm -hmm. And so people look at that. They see Target. Mm -hmm. um, when you say people look at that and see Target, elected officials with differing points of view. Elected officials with differing points of view. And I think it comes from both sides of the aisle, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got folks on the right on one hand who are looking for ways to cut, you know, federal spending. There's a huge educational aspect to what we do in, in mm -hmm. government affairs and, and on our policy team. You know, really just talking with people about what we do and why and, um, you know, how hunting doesn't need to be a big, scary thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and really all of the contributions that our members and supporters and, you know, uh, hunters and anglers across the country have made, have made to conservation. It's really hard to deny once you're presented with the facts. Right. But, but people right. don't see that. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, especially in their first term, they get elected and they, you know, ran on a platform of healthcare ref reformation or something, right? And they never thought two seconds about Pittman-Robertson dollars and how that funds habitat. So, like you say, there's a tremendous amount of time and effort put into education, particularly when a new um, new class of elected officials come in every election cycle, right? Every election cycle, every two <laughs> years in D.C. And, you know, but not even every two years. It's, it's constant because yeah. the staff that we work with are constantly rotating as well. Um, you know, at the, at the state level, you have elections happening yeah. all the time, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Somebody's being elected to something. Um, and so, you know, there's just a constant drumbeat that needs to happen. And, you know, it's not just us. It's not just people who do this professionally, but we need our members and, uh, you know, sort of the grassroots hunting and, and outdoor recreation and wildlife community to also speak up and do some of that storytelling. Talk to their members, talk to their elected officials and say, this is what I do and why. And mm -hmm. this is how I've seen the landscape change or I've seen the sport change and that's a good thing or a bad thing. And here's sure. why, and here's what I would love to see fixed. Right. Um, we need people to help us tell that story. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that's something I'm going to be able to work on with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is, is helping to tell that story, um, you know, with the public and, and with lawmakers. Um, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's just going to be a huge component of what we're working on over the next few years. So let's transition from philosophical mm -hmm. <laughs> right um to a little bit more tangible like current events what's happening and you know let's go down some of our key components on the government affairs side of things uh, the legislative tools that create the on the ground tools that our members and partners work to you know create habitat so at the top of that list i'm thinking about the farm bill where do we stand with the new farm bill so it's not going to be the 2023 farm bill yeah. anymore. Uh, well, back up just, just a little bit. Uh, for the uninitiated, the federal farm bill uh, is generally a five-year bill. Yeah. So the last time we passed one was in 2018. It was reauthorized for five years. And so it was supposed to be, the next time we did one was supposed to be... 2023. 2023. Yeah. Um, political dynamics in Washington, D.C. Um, have been a little bit challenging. Mm -hmm for everyone involved. And uh, so the 2023 Farm Bill didn't happen. Um, so we helped to push for a one-year extension 
of the bill. So it technically expired September 30th of 2023. It's now set for another year. So we'll run out of, you know, the clock will run out on September 30th, 2024. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have another, a new five-year farm bill in place by then. But there are a lot of political headwinds that we're going to have to battle before we get to that point. Within the farm bill is our, ultimately our favorite program, the bread and butter program that has created the habitat that we've seen pheasants, bobwhite quail, particularly in the Great Plains, you know, ride a, a great big wave up, thinking about 2006, so 7, 08, when, you know, enrollment was 36 million acres of CRP. It's not there today in, you know, bird numbers follow that crp trend line where's where's crp at in your mind right now crp is at an interesting point you know i think that um you know it's really hard to pinpoint the reasons for the decline in acres um some of it is government will Hmm. you know lawmakers just had other priorities as as new iterations of the farm bill have come around and so they kind of carved out some acres to you know uh, reclaim some dollars and apply them to other priorities. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, from the farmer landowner perspective, there's, there's a whole commodity economy out there, right? The, the farm economy has been a huge driver of CRP acre decline. Um, you know, when you're seeing record high prices for crops, you know, farmers want to farm every last inch of farm ground that they have. And so, you know, the way that CRP was originally envisioned was as a a whole field program mm. where you're taking whole fields and you're putting them sort of in this this set aside space for 10 years at a time. That model doesn't doesn't really work right. anymore. People aren't interested in enrolling whole fields. And so, you know, now we're looking at a, a lower number of acres in the program. We've got about 27 million now down from that 36. Um, and instead of looking at whole fields, we're looking at much more targeted enrollments. We're looking at people putting pivot corners in CP33 practices. Mm. We're putting in pollinator habitat. We're putting in buffer strips. Um, and so the program, you know, has just fundamentally changed a little bit. And so that's something that we kind of have had to come to terms with, right? Because it's, it's not, it's, this isn't your father's CRP, mm. right? It's, it's a whole new program. Um, but, you know, there are also things that we think that we can do in this farm bill to help reverse the trend and make sure that farmers who want to be in the program, again, you can't force people to do this. Sure, You've got to bring sure. them along with you that they have the the flexibility and the incentive to, um, to enroll those most sensitive acres, the ones that are greatest risk of erosion, the ones where there's the greatest potential mm-hmm. for wildlife habitat. So we have a, a marker bill is what we call it, where you get a piece of legislation introduced. It's not intended to pass by itself. But it's intended as a show of support to gather co-sponsors, kind of make a fuss about, um, which then hopefully will be rolled into the, the final farm bill product. Mm. And so we've got a CRP marker bill called the CRP Improvement Act. It's got bipartisan support, and it's intended to do exactly that, to make the program more flexible and uh, desirable mm-hmm. for, for farmers and ranchers to enter. So, um, you know, it should make things more flexible for farmers who want to, or ranchers who want to graze on their CRP acres, it would increase, this is a big one for some people, it would increase the annual payment limit mm-hmm. um, above the 
current $50,000 cap, which uh, was set when CRP was created back mm. in 1985. And that's never been adjusted. <laughs> um, reinstate some, some cost share for mid-contract management. So one of the requirements of being in the program is that you had to maintain your CRP. You can't just let it get overgrown and right. filled with invasive species. Because if you don't manage it, it, it eventually becomes just a monoculture and that doesn't benefit anything. It doesn't benefit anything. Maybe maybe carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, or, or maybe some water quality. It's holding holding things in the soil, sure. right? But for wildlife purposes. You need some diversity of species. You need some diversity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of that management can be expensive and some of those incentives have been rolled back. So right. we'd like to put those back in place. So lots of good stuff there. We've mm-hmm. got bipartisan support. We're hoping we can roll some of those things into the 2024, hopefully not 2025 farm bill. <laughs> um you know, and hopefully that will that will keep some really positive momentum yeah. going around the program. It's like you mentioned, it's it's the program mm-hmm. for pheasants, and we want it to be as strong as it can possibly be. Yeah, um, it, and it does revolve around voluntary, incentive based, and just you know everything from making it more flexible to increasing soil rental rates. You know, making it a viable option, whether it's you know buffers or field borders or pollinator habitat or state like you know state acres for wildlife a continuous practice i mean there's all sorts of different um avenues to put habitat on the ground but ultimately it's got to be financially viable right right. um another component that's got um potentially an influx of dollars is voluntary public access habitat incentives program the world's longest (laughs) uh uh acronym which is vpa dash hip (laughs) <laughs> and call it VIPA HIP or VPA HIP or just VPA. Which the last time I did uh, a podcast with Bethany and um, and Jim, we talked about VIPA HIP, and it sound does sound like a venereal disease. Oh, right? no. <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's a wonderful program. Um, it's, it is. Yeah. It's a beautiful program. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about potential opportunity for growth there. Sure. So. Uh, VIPA HIP, a farm bill program, not a venereal disease, uh, <laughs> is, um, I believe it's the only federal program dedicated to walk-in access on private lands. Mm. Um, you know, people might not necessarily be familiar with the acronym, but, uh, you know, if you hunt in states like Kansas or North Dakota, we've got um, Kansas's walk-in hunting access program. Yeah, Weeha. Weeha, that's Yeehaw right. for Weeha. <laughs> um, yep. In North Dakota, you've got plots. Yep. Uh, there, there are a few others around the country. Um, There's a whole bunch. You know, a whole uh, bunch. WIA in Minnesota, OLAP in Oklahoma. I mean, there's a, it, it, they've expanded dramatically in the last 10 years, these walk-in programs. As you mentioned, private land being opened up to access, and the foundational component is Viva Hip. Is Viva Hip. That's right. Uh, USDA gets $50 million through the Farm Bill over five years. Uh, to roll back out to states and tribes, which then use the funding to uh, incentivize mm. willing landowners to open their private lands to sportsmen. Um, you know, they do this in a few different ways. Some of them just do a flat-out rental payment. Uh, some of them it'll be a one-time fee. Um, some of them put signage mm-hmm. out on on the private lands. Uh, other programs actually pay for liability insurance. So if somebody 
steps in a badger hole and mm. breaks their leg, you know, they're not going to sue the landowner. Um, you know, these are things that, that landowners worry about. Right and on. if, uh, you know, if we can take some of that pressure off of them, they may be more inclined to allow the public onto their properties. So, um, yeah, really, really great program. It's been incredibly effective. Um, it's often layered on top of CRP mm-hmm. as well, which is another good reason for us to invest in both programs. It's, it's very popular and it's oversubscribed. And so uh, we are asking Congress to triple the authorization for VIPA-HIP from $50 million over five years to $150 million. Now, the financial realities in D.C., you know, that's, that's going to be an uphill climb. It's a very ambitious ask. But, you know, if you never ask, mm-hmm. you'll never find out if you can get it or not. So. And the general public loves this program. I mean, you just think about the opportunity it's created in a time, you know, you think about the pandemic and so many people wanting to go bird hunting and trying to find property. And you just simply can't buy enough land to create enough WMAs and WPAs. And this is a huge, huge um, tool to creating access for people. And uh, in a lot of cases, they are crown jewels. I think about... Um, Nebraska's Open Fields and Waters program, um, Iowa's Iowa Habitat and Access program, IHAP, two that layer habitat as well as access together, and they're just phenomenal. They're chock full of birds. Just look at Rooster Road Trip, you know. Some of these videos, they're happening on these public access of private lands properties, and they're they're tremendous. They're they are. They're tremendous. Wonderful. And the ROI is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have, have the numbers in front of me, but, um, you know, just the return on investment in terms of uh, hunter license fees right. and, um, you know, the investment, the, the revenue that hunters bring to rural, rural communities. Com- yeah. yeah. They spend it at the local restaurant after their hunt, and, you know, have, have a beer and some lunch or they stay at the local hotel right. or go to the local outfitter, pay a local guide whatever it is, um, you know, the, the program pays for itself many times over. No doubt about it. So I think about like McCook, Nebraska, Southwest Nebraska, beautiful, wonderful place. I'm never going to end up there except because open fields and waters has 300,000 acres of private land open to public access in Southwest Nebraska. That's chock full of pheasants, prairie chickens, bobboy quail, and some of the greatest memories of my life with my bird dogs are created on people's private land that they've opened up because of VPA HIP. And so, first of all, to the landowners that participate in those programs, thank you. Huge thank you. Um, I've had some amazing memories that I'll never forget with my dogs and my friends um, on, the, on your lands. And uh, it wouldn't exist without you opening them up so it's an it's awesome program um uh, one more federal program and then we can keep rolling but um, the north americans grasslands conservation act uh give us status uh temperature report on that yeah so uh north american grasslands conservation act is one of our signature bills uh is introduced in the senate last congress and we are working right now on a bipartisan house introduction um you know, basically for, for anyone who maybe hasn't been paying attention as we've talked about it at length over the last couple of years, you know, we looked at the, the the myriad threats and the unsustainable 
development pressure on America's grasslands and looked at the rapid rate of decline of grassland bird populations. Um, and, and we decided we needed to do something about it, right? Uh, and we were trying, you know, looking at models and trying to figure out what the best approach was. And, and we looked at NACA, the North, Americans, uh, North American Wetland Conservation Act, very similar acronym. And, um, you know, when that was passed, you can see a direct correlation between passage of that law mm -hmm. and not only a, a slowdown in the decline, but a reversal in the decline of, um, of waterfowl species. So, you know, we have this model of a very, very successful legislation that's resulted in, I mean, it, it literally is like fixing the exact same, the exact problem that it set out to fix, which is very rare right. in government. Um, so we looked at that, we saw a model, we modeled our bill after that. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, fo very much focused on a phrase we'll keep coming back to voluntary mm. incentive based conservation of private lands. And it takes a very, um, science-based and, and, and strategic uh, approach to managing, holistically managing North America's grasslands, which is pretty cool. Um, and I do say North America's grasslands because there's some provisions in there that would allow for uh, cross-border work with oh, Mexico and Canada okay. as well. Um, you know, given the, the political dynamics in D.C., keep coming back to that, mm. it's, it's a challenging time to be a, a lobbyist in D.C., um, but, you know, given the political dynamics there, it's uh, I would say it's pretty unlikely, but it's not impossible that the bill could make progress soon. Um, but, you know, that's that's all the more reason to keep at it and, and to continue to work to improve the language, find co-sponsors, keep it relevant and top of mind mm -hmm. for folks so that when the moment is right, mm -hmm. you know, we can jump into action and we can get this thing across the finish line. Well, I, I was connected to the State of the Birds report and you look at... Um, all the birds around the country and the di different ecosystems. And the one ecosystem of birds that's actually on the rise is wetlands-oriented birds, a la NACA, creating wetland habitat for birds. The biggest declining ecosystem-related bird group is grasslands. So it, it, it's, it's another one of real obvious, clear trend lines where they're connected. Um, you know, the, the other thing, um, I think it's worth, we have tremendous number of partners that are working towards this legislation um, um, together. New groups, uh, um, North, North uh, National Wildlife Refuge, or National Wildlife Federation, yep. World Wildlife Fund, um, you know, um, tribal associations, Cornell University, um, all working together to um, move this legislation forward. And also a big shout out to uh, Bethany Erm, who has has left the organization for uh, kind of a dream job of hers with um, the Thoroughbred Racehorse Association. Okay. Um, but she was instrumental in, in uh, getting this to from concept to written language so bethany if you're listening thank you thank you <laughs> um all right let's transition a moment um talk about uh states um you know and one of the things that's really impressed me um since you've been on in this role is your um kind of holistic approach to government affairs that you know washington dc is a part of the puzzle it's a big part of the puzzle 
but state advocacy is a another major component of um, what happens on the landscape through policy. Ta- give me a little bit about your vision for our listeners to hear there. Yeah, so, you know, for better or for worse, uh, D.C. is is not where the action is. Hmm. You know, there, there's always something happening there, you know, but I don't know. It, it seems like that's where the center of the universe is right now. It's all anyone <laughs> talks about. It's Biden this, it's Trump that, it's the Freedom Caucus <laughs> is doing something, the squad is doing something else, you know. Um, but But the fact is we are missing opportunities every year in every state where we have birds. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if we don't have somebody waking up every morning thinking about how they can make a positive impact at the state level. Um, you know, there's, there's a very old saying that all politics is local, mm-hmm. and that is still very much the case. Hmm. And there's, there's so much activity at the state level every year, and we have not, um, you know, necessarily put all of the resources there that, that we can. And so that's what we're looking at right now. We're, we're looking about how to grow our state affairs team, how to invest more resources in, uh, in, in the people and in the, in the coalitions that are responding to local issues, into mobilizing our grassroots supporters at the state level. Um, you know, the, they will see the local impacts of these local policies. And mm-hmm. so it's really important that we're activating them and, and, as we talked about earlier, getting them to share their stories with their lawmakers. I, I See, I love that approach. I mean... It, no one could deny that what CRP has done on a countrywide, nationwide basis for bird numbers. But when I hunt Minnesota, our home state here, and you go out and look at legacy amendment signs um, on whether it's public or private property of improved habitat and what it means to not only pheasant numbers, but improved water quality, pollinator habitat, monarchs. I'm incredibly proud. Um, Minnesota voters passed dedicated funding for conservation, for habitat. It was like 62%, um, just a huge percent in um, 2008. And here we are, you know, 2024, and you can no doubt about it see the impact in an extremely positive way it's happening on the landscape in minnesota i know that's a big you know component of what the hope is here that other states you know iowa iowa's water land and legacy amendment that was passed in 2010 but doesn't have a funding mechanism so nothing's actually happened um kansas which we'll be talking about here in the weeks to come on this podcast um kansans for conservation wants to do something similar um it's amazing with what could happen at a state-by-state level with um sort of some vision and investment um based on habitat and conservation improve water quality um that can happen at a state level and have a massive impact right yeah absolutely i uh i saw one lawmaker as i was getting up to speed for this job and and learning more about the minnesota program um i saw somebody describe it as a dedicated fund that safeguards long-term investments against short-term thinking Hmm. in government and i think that that's just a really perfect way to encapsulate what what these programs are trying to do Hmm. Um, you know, the, the dedicated funding streams that we're talking about here in Minnesota 
in Iowa, in Kansas, in 35 states around mm-hmm. the country uh, that, that already have these types of programs, um, really do provide uh, you know, confidence to the general public, to companies, to organizations like ours to invest in, in conservation. And, um, you know, they oftentimes, you know, we don't want the government to pick winners and losers, but sometimes they have to. And this is one of those times where red state government picked a real winner. Um, and, and so we're working really hard right now in Kansas, in Iowa, in other places to make sure that this Minnesota model, uh, this dedicated funding model is able to to be implemented and to thrive uh, in places where it doesn't already exist. And there's a lot of a lot of times folks get nervous about you think dedicated funding and they're like, oh, they just want to tax us more. And that's not the case. And so many times there's new things that arise that you know I think about the legalization of marijuana, the um, legalization of sports gambling, lotteries. You know, there's all sorts of things that are evolving. And, you know, if you put a earmark towards Habitat on any one of these new things, it could generate millions of dollars. It could be a total game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to just do a quick lightning round. Get all to right. know you. I'm ready. Yeah. Um, all right. Some fun stuff. Get Rattle off your um, favorite movie book band. Uh, favorite movie would be Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, seriously? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't even have to think about that one. I've seen it too many times. To How count. old were you when you saw that for the first time? Uh, I think I think it came out in 1992, so I would have been seven. Okay. Yep. Um, I, there's something as an adult, right, with uh, you know something about playing God with nature that mm. makes for a very compelling storytelling. <laughs> uh, but also just dinosaurs are really cool. Yeah. Do you yeah. have uh, insect in inside an amber um, rock somewhere? No, I don't. But I do have a raptor claw. Uh, do you really? Mm. Oh, wow. All right. Favorite book. Favorite. Va- right. Uh, there were other questions there. Yeah, that's all right. Um, favorite book I, is. I kind of took you off course because Jurassic Park was not what not I was what expecting. Not uh, I am a woman of mystery. It, it, clearly. Clearly. Um, favorite book is hard. Um, I, I'm a pretty avid reader, but uh, right now I'm working through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Um, which probably another. No thing comment. I have no idea. Um, it's uh, It's sort of sort of fantasy comedy hmm. um multi, you know sort of a multiverse concept um it's it's a fairly long series uh, but it makes for excellent airplane reading hmm. you okay. know it's not too heavy it, you know it's pretty funny um and so yes yeah, so i'm working my way through <laughs> through that right now um you are full of, mystery. full of mystery okay what's the yeah. band uh favorite band um uh i would probably have to say fleet foxes okay uh, I've listened to quite a bit. There's just something about um, about their music, especially the the first album that's just like sitting in a quiet, cozy cabin in the woods. Yeah, it's just winter song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a favorite bird to hunt? A favorite bird? Yeah. Oh. Um, I don't know. Well, let's let's go. I mean, it's. I probably shouldn't say it because I work for pheasants and quail, but uh, but let's go with woodcock. Okay. Let's go with the OG. What about uh, well, that makes sense. That was your yeah. first love. Yeah. Um, what state would you um, like to go to? Is like top of your bucket list. Top of the bucket list. 
I would say somewhere in the Southwest. Okay. Maybe maybe going after some of the Western quail species. You know, as an East Coast girl, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the Midwest in, in my time working with farmers. Um, the Southwest is a an alien landscape to me. <laughs> um, and so I would love to get down there and just explore some. I know we've got some really good folks down yeah, there. Yeah, that was uh, my If most anyone wants to extend an invitation, <laughs> send me an email. That was my w- most recent hunt was down in Arizona. And you're not wrong for choosing it. It's, it, it's very cool. I, I mentioned this before. When you go to the desert, you know, I'm a kid grow, who grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, forests and woods. And you're, my perception of the desert is like sand, cactus, and nothingness. And you get there and you start walking around like, this is amazing. Uh, there's life everywhere. It's different, different life than you're expecting, yep. but it's, it's wonderful. Um, all right, you're, you're a diminutive person. Mm. <laughs> I am. I'm very petite. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not tall. Um, you're very delicate about that. Well, yeah. I, I'm, I'm also not tall. <laughs> um, what is your, uh, you know, because this is something that, women in particular have struggled with as they've, you know, embraced bird hunting, you know, shotgun fit, gear, you know, it's improved in the last 10 years, but it, it didn't, (laughs) it it has a long way to go, right? So uh, tell me about your hunting, like your shotgun setup, the gear you love, like what, um, you know, I'm sure there's women out there listening, looking for a new hack of gear or things to add to you know their their kit as the kids say um what do you like sure um i would say two two things uh that i really come back to i've got a a cz reduced length Hmm. redhead deluxe 20 gauge okay um over under and it's awesome Hmm. it's awesome it's not a youth gun it's just a shorter gun Mm -hmm. Do you know um, how long the barrel is? Oh, not off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it's, it's shorter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it in the rack, you know, against you know. Uh, all of the other shotguns. You know. You know it's yours. Um, but uh, it's, it's light enough and, and short enough to be really easy to handle mm. in the field um, and, and quick to draw. I mean, I, I shoot sporting clays with it as well. Um, it's, it served me really well. Mm. It's sort of a beater at this point. It's, (laughs) it's seen some things, but, um, but, but I love it. Mm. I love it. Absolutely. CZ really hit it out of the park with that. That's great. Um, and then this isn't sort of a traditional, uh, outdoor upland company. Um, I probably should have researched it before talking (laughs) to you here. Um, but, uh, there's a women's wear company called Dovetail Workwear. Huh. Um, and they make, um, you know, uh, women's work clothes. Sure. Uh, so it's sort of, you know, Carhartt styled, uh, Dilute you know, trading company. workwear, yeah. um, but in a wider range of sizes. Dovetail. Dovetail, dovetail workwear, I think okay. it's called. Okay. Um, and I've got a pair of, uh, just workhorse overalls huh. that I break out just over and over and over again. Huh. Um, they just, uh, another situation where they just knocked you out of the park for people of more diminutive stature. Cool. And, you know, and the stuff, it's not, it's not, no offense to people who like hunting and, you know, blaze pink, mm. but that's not my thing, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. is just, it's just gear. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not branded as women's gear. It's just, 
good quality and it gets the job done. Makes a huge yeah. difference to feel comfortable in the clothing when That's you're right. doing something, especially something as physically active as bird hunting. Yeah. Two dogs. What's the right number of dogs? Do you have a, no- a third dog coming? Um, well, I live inside the Beltway, inside the <laughs> Washington, D.C. Beltway. So I think the answer to the right number of dogs for me is probably none. Yeah. Uh, but that is That's not, not the right answer. That is not in the cards. Um, I'll, I'll say we're pretty happy with our setup of two. Cool. You mentioned I don't want to be outnumbered <laughs> in the field, especially with a, a little boy coming up <laughs> in the space. You, uh, you mentioned you kind of got into hunting through food. Um, which I, I think is cool. I, you know, we've, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast in the organization, the locavore movement in uh, connection to sourcing your own meats. And, you know, one bad day is what, you know, a lot of times I put on the table, right? Cause you know, pheasants and quail and rough grouse or white tailed deer, they've had just the perfect utopic life until one bad day. And that's a, marvelous way to you know procure your own food and we also talk like how big a audience really is there that cares about hunting because of meat um and i i always go the one direction like i think it's a pretty big audience there's debate there there's really hard to figure out but um what's what's your impression do you think that's a big audience of people that uh come to hunting because they want to eat something? I think it's probably a big audience of people who come to hunting hmm. because they want to eat something. I don't know that I can speak to how many continue on with the sport. Hmm. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, things, especially, you know, for, for folks who might be into more alternative diets, hmm. you know, maybe they're coming from big cities, you know, yeah. urban, suburban environments. They might have a lot more hurdles to get out to hunt than, somebody who lives in rural Minnesota. Sure. Um, so, you know, that, that can be pretty ho- prohibitive. And so while it might draw you to the sport in mm. the first place, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say how many people stick with it. Yeah. You know, I would urge them to, yeah. I would urge them to, I mean, it's so, it's obviously so fulfilling here. I am mm-hmm. working in this space now, but, um, but you know, I could see that being, yeah. being a challenge. Yeah. Your favorite wild game dish is. I see. I've mm-hmm. totally deviated from the lightning round, but we'll call this the final <laughs> second. To, uh, I'll ask for your closing thoughts. Um, but what's your favorite uh, wild game dish as we start to wrap up? I, you can't make me pick a favorite. Oh yeah, I can. it's like it's like a favorite. You can't name your favorite kid. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm a pretty I'm a pretty adventurous eater. Like I said earlier, mm. um, I'm also a pretty strong believer in the the idea of if it grows together, it goes together. I, I like that. Yeah, you know. So um, I I don't want to pick a favorite, but mm. I would say the the best dishes that I've had are the ones that that really follow that that mantra so you know sort of i mentioned earlier venison and mushrooms Mm -hmm. that were foraged in the woods where the deer came from Mm -hmm. or duck or goose with wild wild rice rice. um pheasant and and blackberries go amazingly together yes Yes. yeah they go really well together um you know i I would say that those are the things that really stand out Hmm. um the dishes that really stand out but i don't make me pick a favorite (laughs) That's, that's too hard. <laughs> um, thank you for doing this. Of course. This is a pleasure. Um, closing thought. What do you want to leave uh, leave our listeners with? 
I don't, uh, I'll just, I'll just say that I feel so, so very lucky to be here and to be a part of this community, um, and, and to, uh, have the privilege of, of speaking on our members and our volunteers and our supporters behalf. Um, you know, a, a colleague, you were in a conversation with me the other day, actually, where a colleague said that I have one of the coolest jobs in the world mm. and he's not wrong. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do every day and, and work with all of the great, uh, you know, very passionate scientists and, uh, you know, biologists and precision ag specialists and, mm. um, you know, federal leaders, uh, state agency leaders who do this work in and out every day. Everyone is so talented and passionate about what they do. And it just it just makes every day a joy. Yeah. Well, I I'm thrilled that um, you were hired to join this organization. Oh, you bring you. tremendous amount of talent, um, vision, um, and energy to this space, which we need. And I, I, you know, as I mentioned before, um, I love the perspective of getting things done at the state level. I, there's no denying that you know a, a CRP program that's at um, a more um, viable incentive-based. Um, platform than it is right now would be beneficial but they're you know having a state complementary state programs you know it's it's never going to be one silver bullet anymore it's going to be a variety of things and i i love the energy you bring into the state side of things and i look forward to what you're going to do over the course of the next year and five years and decades ahead and i'm sure this isn't the last podcast we'll do together So thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Um, And I'll remind you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.